Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm David Watson, Principal of Green Templeton College. It's a very great pleasure to welcome you to Green Templeton College at St. Hughes. Uh, this lecture this evening, uh, the, the Barclay Lecture for 2011, is a very important event in the annual life of Green Templeton College. Uh, the lecture series was founded, as many of you know, in memory of Clifford and Evelyn uh, Barclay, who were probably the key benefactors for the original Oxford Centre for Management Studies, which is the intellectual spark from which um, Templeton College and then Green Templeton College uh, has, has taken uh, the story forward. Uh, the lectures began in 1992, and the roll call of previous lectures, lecturers is, is splendid. Among the previous lecturers were Eddie George, David Rowland, Charles Handy, Tom Burke, Stuart Rose, and Richard Lambert. And last year in 2010, the first of the Barclay lectures under the Green Templeton shield took place um, and was given by Sir William Castell. The series is so successful that, as you see this evening, it has burst the bounds of what Green Templeton could lay on in terms of a lecture theatre inside our own college. So we're especially grateful this evening for the hospitality of St. Hugh's. And it's also a great pleasure to welcome our 2011 lecturer, Richard Frank. Richard is the Margaret T. Moran Professor of Health Economics in the Harvard Medical School. Uh, Professor Frank's reputation, of course, precedes him. Suffice it to say that he's been a national and an international leader um, in an understanding a number of critical issues, mental health, disability, substance abuse, and especially the issues that surround the long-term funding of um, appropriate health systems. And it's towards that topic that he will direct his, his lecture tonight. His title, as you can see, is Health Economics in the Policy Fray, Insights from the U.S., Healthcare reform. Please welcome Professor Richard Frank. Um, thank you. I'm I'm really delighted and honored to be here, um, and um, I'm going to be speaking to you about uh, uh, some of the uh, real politics and how real politics and analytics come together, and I'm going to use the uh, case of American health reform uh, to illustrate that. Um, the story, however, begins actually in part in London uh, several years ago um, when uh, I uh, arrived in London for a conference, and um, I had just been cleared by the White House to receive a political appointment uh, in the Obama administration, and I was having dinner with uh, Stephen and Jane Barclay. And um, I was, uh, being the cautious academic that I am, uh, I was worried about what this would do to me. And so I was uh, asking Stephen and Jane what, what, what they thought, and uh, Stephen, in his uh, low-key, subtle way, uh, <laughs> told me it was a no-brainer and that we were done speaking about it. And, um, uh, and so uh, whatever reservations I had were sort of swept away at that point, and, and on I went to, uh, uh, to do some of the things I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, uh, what, what I'm going to try to do is uh, to do three things. I'm going to start off with some um, brief reflections on uh, uh, sort of 
taking uh, one, uh, having a foot, uh, both feet in academia, and moving with the analytic skills into government and into sort of a, uh, a political position, and uh, uh, how that differs and, and the transition that makes. Uh, then I'm going to uh, provide you some uh, context and uh, some of the pressures uh, that were in play during the run-up to uh, the enactment of uh, U.S. health care reform, uh, which is known as the Affordable Care Act uh, in the United States. And uh, then I'm going to turn to a case study of a particular part of the uh, Affordable Care Act that I worked on, which is uh, the part that deals with long-term care, the financing of long-term care, known as the Class Act, and which, uh, to some extent, ha has some resemblance to the Dilnock Commission here in the UK. And uh, uh, in order to, to, to accomplish that, uh, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to trouble you with learning some American civics. And uh, it's, it's, it's not something that I'm happy about, but it's, I think, necessary in order to get the points across. So let me begin with uh, some comments on uh, uh, sort of uh, going from academia to, uh, uh, to government. Uh, in general, to be a successful academic uh, or an academic health economist, one looks at important policy and social problems. Uh, one tries through a combination of conceptual and empirical research to really understand uh, what lies behind the phenomena that is producing the problem. Uh, one analyzes it, uh, understands the dynamics of that market or uh, that set of regulations, and then make some proposals about how to fix them. And what that does is it, it assumes implicitly that you can always start fresh. And it turns out in government you can almost never start fresh. And what it means is that uh, you arrive in government and you're handed pieces of legislation, regulations, uh, uh, policy pronouncements, administrative actions, all of which are tied in with other arrangements and all of which uh, build on existing institutions. And so you almost never have an opportunity to start fresh and therefore the entire way you're used to doing things is no longer entirely relevant. And so um, that is very much uh, what I was faced with and um, what it does is it reassures you that your skills are useful for the task at hand but you're in completely uncomfortable territory. And so uh, in, in this particular case, um, this began with the very uh, uh, basic uh, parts of the Affordable Care Act, which was trying to take, uh, uh, to go from where American uh, health economic policy has been for the last 20 years, which is focusing on prices and focusing on regulation of the contours of the market, and doing what the British do all the time, which is worrying about rationing of quantities. And the United States has, in a very deliberate way, uh, although not always uh, explicit, uh, moved through the Affordable Care Act to put more and more of the health dollar and the health services in the United States under budgets, and therefore to control quantities. And so it takes us entirely out of our comfort zone as economists. So let me now turn to the details of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and uh, what I'm going to try to do is not so much walk you through it, but to try to give you the context uh, 
and the pressures that were being felt uh, as we enacted that legislation. And then I was going to turn back and walk you through this case study on the um, long-term care finance problem. So there were three cornerstones to American health reform. Uh, The first cornerstone was to expand uh, health insurance uh, coverage uh, to to essentially the entire population, largely through first expansion of public programs, uh, Medicaid being the uh, program that exists that funds the poor and the disabled. And the goal was to reduce the number of uninsured Americans from about 50 million people to about 15 million people. So we were going to add uh, to the insurance rolls about 35 million people. And uh, most of that was going to happen through the expansion of public programs, but part of it was also going to happen through the reform and redesign of private health insurance markets. And that is the sort of second uh, uh, leg to the stool of American health reform, which was to make the way that we purchase health insurance for a substantial segment of the population, uh, those in individual and group insurance markets, look much more like the mass purchasing of large employers and the government of the United States. And then the third piece was to um, reform the delivery and the payment uh, approach to healthcare uh, in the United States. And as I said, uh, most simply understood it was to put more and more of the healthcare dollar and more and more of healthcare services under budgets uh, in terms of uh, organized delivery system so they could be better managed. Uh, this is the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and um, the people at the back probably can't see it uh, very well, but the, um, there are 10 titles to it. But really, the, uh, the heart of the matter, at least in the public perception, is the first three titles, which are uh, to expand coverage through private insurance regulation, which is the first title, the public program expansion, which is the second title, and delivery system reform, which is the third title. And so that's really the heart of the matter. And then if you jump down to Title VIII, you'll see the uh, Class Act, which, if nothing else, wins the prize for the best title. Uh, of the titles, and um, that is uh, long-term care, and we'll be talking about that shortly. Uh, so this is uh, one of this is the first inescapable pressure uh, that the Obama administration found itself under, which is uh, this is a picture of the projected growth in public health care spending uh, relative to gross domestic product. So the horizontal line is uh, the, the line that would have happened if healthcare, if government healthcare spending had stayed even with uh, general infl- uh, general growth in the economy. And then the uh, the stu- uh, steep lines there uh, reflect what will happen uh, if uh, along current law, if we continue to grow as we have been. Uh, and even anticipate some of the basic changes that are underway. And the important thing to notice are two things. First of all, that we have a cost problem that involves just more rapid spending due to increased provider payments, new technologies, and that is the top light blue uh, section of the pie there. And so that by itself causes us to grow faster, faster in the economy overall. However, the larger part of the problem is that dark blue segment, which is the effect of population aging. And so the important take-home message here is 
no matter what would happen, we in the United States have this huge cost problem that is generated by demographics, not by wasteful spending or um, uh, um, excessive provider payments. It's just driven by population changes. And uh, that means that there is only a limited amount that you can do about that. And so that sort of frames the problem. We have a cost problem. We have a cost growth problem. We have fiscal pressure on our budget. And a lot of it is due to health care. And a lot of that uh, cannot be dramatically modified without making huge cuts into the basic infrastructure. Uh, so there are two things to note about American uh, health care costs. Uh, the first is that we spend more on health care uh, as a nation than any nation in the history of mankind. Um, so we, we may spend a lot, but at least we don't spend it well. And, uh, and it turns out that it's estimated that somewhere between 25 and 50 percent of what we spend is of low value. Uh, and uh, uh, more critically, it's wasteful. Uh, the second part is builds on the point that I made a moment ago, which is that um, the uh, U.S. federal deficit problem, the U.S. federal budget problem, is in large part a healthcare growth problem. And so, if you're going to insure 35 million new people uh, and are going to incur those extra uh, expenses, uh, the place to look for uh, money to fund that is in the healthcare sector. And so we've got to find a way to grab that 25 to 50% wasteful spending and redirect it towards coverage of people who currently are not insured. And that is really the backdrop uh, to US healthcare reform. So let me bring you back uh, in time to the period uh, that uh, right after President Obama was elected, um, and there was a recession on, the Great Recession as it's now known. Um, the President's stimulus package um, had uh, been enacted. However, it was quite a bit smaller than many people had hoped for, and there were concerns that it might not be enough. And, uh, and th the reason that there was those concerns, uh, the reason that it came out that way was uh, in great measure because of concerns about the debt that were already surfacing and the deficit. And so two things had to happen. One, healthcare reform had to promise to save money and save enough money to pay for itself. And two, because of this impulse to address the deficit, the Congress and the President made the pledge that they would not only make healthcare reform pay for itself, they would, in fact, find additional monies that would bring down the deficit and bring down uh, the long-term debt situation. So all that went forward very nicely. And uh, in the uh, fall of 2009, uh, in October, the House of Representatives uh, passed uh, the first version of health reform. And in December, late December, around Christmas time of 2009, the Senate acted on the Affordable Care Act. And so we had two bills. And in the United States, the usual process is you take the two bills that uh, generally are different, and they're different in two ways. They're substantively different. Uh, the House of Representatives tends to press more extreme bills, either on the left or the right, depending on who's in power. 
The Senate is more moderate, but tends to be technically quite sloppy. And so the, the House of Representatives has these very technically good bills. The Senate has very sloppy bills. But all this gets cleaned up in conference committee uh, and sort of a, a, a balanced, technically well-written uh, piece of legislation is intended to emerge. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, Senator Kennedy died during all this. And uh, there was a special election that in Massachusetts, my home state, uh, where a Republican won. And in the US, um, for controversial pieces of legislation, the Senate uh, ha- will only enact a piece of legislation if there are 60 votes to overcome a potential filibuster. And Senator Kennedy was the 60th vote, which meant that that was no longer possible. So the usual process was no longer on the table. So what this meant was the Democratic leadership quickly had to find Plan B, which was what we know, uh, what's known as reconciliation. And it was something that President Clinton had actually entertained uh, during his administration as a way of passing his version of health reform, but that failed. Uh, reconciliation uh, was designed to make sure that essential legislation couldn't be held hostage. And this is through the Budget Act, that uh, if you're going to have a strong budget process in the United States, it was felt that you couldn't allow small minorities to uh, hold uh, the budget hostage. And so uh, in this case, uh, there were specific rules set out uh, by which a um, uh, uh, two pieces of legislation could be reconciled uh, and result in uh, a single bill with a uh, simple majority uh, vote in both sides of of the Congress. Now, one of the important rules that I will tell you about now, but that will become particularly important later, is that the only changes that can be made that are allowable in the original bill that's chosen are um, changes that result in a significant budgetary impact. Those can be changed from the original bill and then voted on through majority rule. And uh, so that's what happened in the United States. They chose the Senate bill because it was the more moderate and they needed the majority in the Senate. Uh, but as, as I noted a few minutes ago, that was also a very um, sloppily written bill. And so nevertheless, uh, it just enacted, it was signed into law by the president, and it was something uh, that had been accomplished, that had been on the, uh, on the books since Franklin Roosevelt's uh, president. So it was an important accomplishment. So I've now told you about the economic pressures. I've told you about the legislative institutions. Uh, there's one more important actor in this story, and that's the budget institution, uh, what's known as the Con- Congressional Budget Office. I'm going to take a moment to uh, quote from Grantle Rice, who is a famous sports writer, but also a poet in the United States. And this comes from a um, a poem called Alumnus Football. And it says, for when the great, uh, one great scorer comes to mark against your name, he writes not that you won or lost, but how you played the game. And the the important things here are the notion of the one great scorer which in Congress means the Congressional Budget Office has nearly divine powers when it comes to producing numbers for the Congress. And two, 
the rules of scoring are very much a game and is a political budgetary game that's played that will figure prominently in this story. So let me tell you quickly what scoring is. Uh, scoring is really making cost estimates. All legislation in the United States, uh, by law, must be scored. And scoring is very technical and very controversial and is easily open to manipulation. And so uh, in order to uh, minimize that, there are uh, a set of rules that have been uh, uh, codified over the years that will allow, uh, uh, at least constrain, the manipulation of the scoring process. And so uh, people like me, academic economists or uh, analytic economists in government, uh, have this little cat and mouse game we play with the uh, Congressional Budget Office. We ask our allies in Congress to interact with the Congressional Budget Office to ask, what happens if we make this change to the statute? What happens if we make that change to the statute? And each time you get an estimate back and then somebody like me sits down and says, aha, and I back solve to figure out how they were making the forecast, which I'm not allowed to do. But then when we go forward to make our proposals, I have an idea about how they're actually making their forecast, and I can try to advance the administration's policy gains and still get a good score. Okay. So the way scoring actually works is the uh, budget office makes a 10-year projection, which is by law, all bills have to be looked at in a 10-year window. And what they do is they analyze a piece of legislation and they decide whether it's, how far it departs from that baseline. And so if it's $100 billion over 10 years, it has a score of plus 100 billion. And then if it was negative, it would be a negative score. And what it does, it tells you how far off your expected cost growth you're going to be. And it's very difficult. And when you have major social legislation like US health reform, where there really is no exact experience or analogy to draw from, it becomes very, very true. So now I'm going to turn to a case study, which is the uh, Community Living Assistance Services and Supports, which, as I said, is akin to uh, the Dilnot Commission in the United States, uh, the U US version of the UK Dilnot Commission, which is really how do you deal with a variety of long-term services and supports for uh, aging and disabled populations. And what it does is it illustrates the role of how uh, economic analysis in a politically charged, budget-obsessed, and in a sense, uh, um, environment where there's a lot of strategic manipulation of the process kind of can, um, uh, uh, can play itself out. And in the case that I'm going to give you, plays itself out in a very unhappy way. So the uh, Class Act has its origins with Senator Kennedy. Uh, this was Senator Kennedy's legacy. Uh, literally, uh, at the very end of his life, he asked his closest colleagues and his staff to continue to work on this piece of legislation so that it would be included in health care reform. So it was very important. And given the power of the Kennedy name and, and, and Ted Kennedy as the lion of the Senate, uh, uh, this had a lot of um, political legs, as they say. 
the aim here was to do exactly what the Dilnot Commission was trying to do, is to uh, address two important problems. On one hand, is to find a means for supporting disabled people who want to work. That is, if somebody needs some personal assistance, some mechanical assistance, in order to uh, get them a job and keep them a job, and therefore rely less just on public programs, this program was meant to serve that function. At the same time, there was a second function, which was to create a long-term care insurance policy uh, for people as they age and become increasingly infirm so that they could uh, flexibly purchase assistance and um, uh, perhaps home modifications and devices that would aid them to remain independent as long as possible. And uh, so that's what we have in common with the Dilnot Commission. What is different is that Senator Kennedy early on made the political calculation that an entitlement, a social insurance approach, would not work. And so, therefore, he relied instead on a voluntary program. And uh, we will see how that plays out. So, my personal reflection uh, here is on the second day of my tenure in the Obama administration, I was called up to the Office of Health Reform and I was told, this is yours. Um, you will do the policy work in support of first working with the Congress to uh, shape the piece of legislation towards a, uh, a more sustainable and effective uh, policy. And then after it is enacted, if it is enacted, uh, you will work on implementation. And so quickly I asked myself, what does one do when one is handed a policy that is uh, addressing a very important social problem that you need to take seriously, but is done in an extraordinarily flawed manner in which your bosses, your political leaders, support figures? So that was what I spent. So this is what I did last summer. This is, um, so let me quickly tell you about long-term care uh, in the United States. Uh, the risks are real. Um, people that reach uh, 65, uh, about a third of them will spend some time in a nursing home before they die. Uh, in, at any point in time, about 14% of them need paid care. And uh, for people aged 85 and over, about 31% of them need paid care. And this is all changing in a direction that's negative for the public budgets because the portion of the population that's 85 or more will double over the next 30 years. And the replacement ratio, uh, that is the number of elderly people divided by the number of people under the age of 65, is, that number is growing. And therefore, there'll be fewer informal caregivers to provide help to uh, uh, aging adults. And I think that's true in the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, today, Somebody who is uh, 65 faces a 5% risk of spending over a quarter million dollars on long-term care, and uh, about a 16% risk of spending between $100,000 and $250,000. And uh, our latest projections on um, readiness for retire, readiness for retirement suggest that nearly half of people uh, are not prepared to absorb the usual costs of living 
plus long-term care and health care out-of-pocket expenses going forward. <coughs> so uh, the way we in the United States have been mitigating that risk to date has been through three mechanisms. One through savings, and if you uh, uh, see there, the uh, average uh, savings for people between the ages of 60 and 75 uh, is about $89,000. Uh, which uh, is, uh, has to take care of uh, many unusual, is, has to provide income support plus protection against uh, things like long-term care risk. Uh, general, those savings are inadequate. Second is the Medicaid program, which is a means-tested program, which means that middle-class Americans, if they want to rely on Medicaid, essentially have to impoverish themselves uh, before they can be supported for long-term services and support. And that means using up most of their house value in addition to uh, depleting their savings. And then there's a long-term care insurance market in the United States, which uh, uh, has been around for about 30 years and currently has about 7 million policies in place. Remember, we're a country of 350 million people. And... Um, Part of the problems there are the policies are expensive, uh, the coverage is incomplete, uh, that is that they tend to be time-limited, three years on average of coverage, and uh, they tend to have dollar caps, so say $150 a day for three years. Uh, there's underwriting, which excludes somewhere between 20 and 40% of people interested in purchasing such policies. And in general, there's uh, a tremendous difficulty in spreading that kind of risk because so many of the risks are 30 years off and they're tied to the macroeconomy, they're tied to the cost of healthcare, and they're tied to demographic changes, all of which are hard to spread away within a cohort because they hit everybody uh, together. And one of the things that some companies have been using to uh, mitigate that risk were derivatives. And uh, <laughs> yes, and uh, and Dodd Frank, and Frank is no relation to me. Um, uh, Dodd Frank made holding derivatives much more expensive, in which case this made this um, uh, this line of work actually more hazardous. And some of the large players have been withdrawing from this market. So the idea of the Class Act was to create a uh, a, a source of financing for long-term care. Uh, that filled in those gaps. Now, as you'll see, it, uh, the, the design principles were, as I told you, voluntary. Uh, the, the idea was to be more inclusive, not to have underwriting, to have uh, benefits that were related to disability uh, needs, constrained administrative expenses, a cash benefit to allow people to flexibly use resources to promote community living, uh, to find some ways to uh, put re take relief off of public programs by uh, substituting uh, private dollars for public dollars, and this thing would be entirely supported by premiums. So uh, no doubt some of you are economists and some of you are from the, in the insurance industry and some of you have common sense and you're all probably going, what? How could this be? And that's true. Uh, there is a difficulty. Uh, but I will tell you some more details and you'll see how much more difficult my job was. Uh, one thing was that there was a five-year vesting period. 
which meant that you had to pay premiums for a five-year period and before you could claim benefits, and that uh, in three of those five years, you had to be earning money through work. And uh, however, the standard was very low. Uh, there was a fixed premium by age, and there was special treatment of particularly low-income people uh, where they would pay $5 a month premiums. So I can sort of summarize the problem here very simply. Uh, uh, one day, some people from who owned sheltered workshops for people with developmental disabilities came to my office. And they said, isn't it interesting that for $60 a year, for $300 over five years, my people are going to be able to get at least $18,000 a year for the rest of their lives. And so it doesn't take a PhD health economist to figure out the mathematics there. It's going to create a very difficult problem for building a risk. <coughs> and so um, what, what you see is um, there are just tremendous threats to the risk pool because this is an enormously good deal for the most disabled people, and there wasn't a very good way of treating them differently. In fact, they were advantaged financially. And then all of this was layered over uh, uh, with an amendment saying there had to be 75-year solvency for this thing. So as I told you earlier, they, uh, um, uh, the great scorer, the one great scorer is the Congressional Budget Office, and they built an economic model uh, which was based on uh, several uh, important assumptions. One is uh, inelastic demand, which meant that they took the level of take-up in the private sector, which was about 4 to 5%, and they said that was invariant. So if the premiums were high, it would be 4 to 5%. If the premiums were low, it would be 4 to 5%. Second, except in the case with indexing, if you index the product, people would view it as a price increase coming down the road and would take up at lower rates. That was the assumption in the model. And the third was they misunderstood the uh, loopholes in the law uh, for uh, playing games uh, uh, to enter the program. So it turns out, as bad as this looks, and I'm, and I'm sure at this point this looks very bad to all of you, um, there were some opportunities here. There were some uh, institutions within the law that could be built on to make a viable program. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office uh, estimated a premium of $123 for a $75 a day uh, premium. It's $123 a month, which was a little bit higher than private long-term care insurance, but at half the benefit. So one of the concerns that immediately became apparent to everybody, which is if you charge a little bit more than private health and uh, long-term care insurance and your benefit is half, how are you going to get anybody who could qualify on the basis of health status for the private long-term care insurance to join this program, which is absolutely necessary to create a healthy principle. So, this is the financial projection, the 10-year financial projection. And uh, what is important here is to recognize that there are 73 billion reasons why the administration wanted to keep this. Okay? Because recall, there, was a pro there were two promises made. Health reform will pay for itself, and health reform will contribute to reducing the debt. 
this was $73 billion in debt reduction. The total debt, redu debt reduction projection for the entire Affordable Care Act was about $134 billion. So well over half of it came from this. And that was because we had a five-year vesting period, so you're collecting premiums for five years, and not that many people immediately go into benefit. And so you have, uh, over 10 years, uh, very little in the way of benefit payout and a tremendous amount of premium collected. And recall, everything has to be done with a 10-year budget window. So without knowing what happens beyond the 10th year, uh, this is a budget trick. So clearly, people were concerned. There were concerns that uh, the take-up, particularly among healthy people, would be low. There was real concern that only the sickest, most disabled people would join, creating adverse selection, because there was no underwriting and it was voluntary. Uh, there was concern over uh, program integrity associated with uh, the cash benefit, and there was concern about gaming. And so what it did in a fundamental way is it raised a challenge to the basic presumption of can you have one program that addresses both disability and long-term care insurance? And it created a serious doubt. So now let me tell you what happened. The Congressional Budget Office model was almost surely wrong. And uh, we built, in my office, we built two models that came out with very different answers. Uh, our projections for the basic legislation was for much higher costs, uh, but the opportunities to fix it were uh, uh, more fertile because uh, we did not assume uh, inelastic demand. And it turns out the inelastic demand assumption is very, very damaging. That is, the fixed take-up rate is extraordinarily damaging. We worked with the Congress, and we drafted an amendment uh, to the legislation that would have uh, uh, increased the earnings and employment requirements and indexed the, the benefit. And the result, the effect of doing that is essentially you take out the disability piece. Because uh, most disabled people, uh, most poor disabled people would not be able to meet these criteria. And so essentially what you did is you made it into a long-term care insurance policy that was potentially viable. And uh, there, there were some other things. Now, the administration and the Congress wanted to accomplish two things. They wanted to fix the policy, right? They recognized that there was a terrible design problem. Uh, and they also recognized that there were some fixes possible. At the same time, they wanted to keep the deficit reduction. And every time we put in one of the fixes, we reduce the premium. Now, according to our models, when you reduce the premiums, you increase take-up. But we don't count. Remember, the great scorer, the one great scorer is the only number that counts. And so regardless of what happened, you were going to get a 4 to 5% take-up rate. And so every time we saved premiums, we reduce the contribution to deficit. So what do you do? Your bosses say we need that contribution to deficit. So we were, uh, we, we turned out to be twice too clever. We raised the value of the benefit. 
we raised it to, I think, $125. So now we were competing with private health insurance. It brought the premium up, so our 10 years, $73 billion stayed in place. But then we violated the reconciliation budget rules, which said that only significant budget changes could be introduced into the legislation. And because we had erased the significant budget changes by trying to preserve our contribution to deficit, all the fixes were erased from the legislation. So this is entirely a, um, a, a tragedy of um, uh, uh, clever, skilled analytic economists interacting with a budget office with a bad model and uh, uh, um, budget-obsessed politics. So what we did post-enactment is recall, I told you it's a very poorly written bill. And we found a variety of loopholes working with our lawyers where we could exert um, uh, administrative authority, regulatory authority, to try to put in most of these uh, uh, solutions that we had introduced into the legislation because there was an extraordinarily strong admonition to, um, uh, to make sure that the thing was fiscally solvent. And so we were able to use that authority plus sloppy drafting to try to advance the cause. So second try, we put in most of the same fixes, and uh, we worked very rig hand in glove with our um, uh, government lawyers uh, to do this. And then it all started to unravel because we had another election in which the uh, House of Representatives went from a Democratic to a Republican side, which meant that all regulatory actions were going to get far more scru scrutiny than they had previously. And so uh, the cost of exerting administrative authority um, was increased. And the Congress started challenging us on all fronts. Uh, in addition, we had a change in the leadership of, uh, of the government lawyers. And we went from a, uh, a chief counsel that said, tell me what the good policy is, and I'll figure out whether the risks in court are worth it to somebody who said, I'm not sure I want to take those risks unless they're airtight. And so we uh, wound up uh, in a situation where uh, uh, many of the fixes that we had proposed first in legislation, then through administrative activity, were no longer viewed as consistent with the statute. So what you have here is a toxic mix. Um, First, we tried to address both disability and um, aging problems, long-term care problems, with a single instrument that was voluntary. That's incompatible. Those two are incompatible goals. Uh, the budgetary politics uh, were, were, were clear, and the administration was under enormous political and economic pressure to do something on that front, uh, which... Um, somewhat tied our hands in crafting solutions. <clears throat> then there was a weak economic design. Senator Kennedy's original conception <clears throat> was problematic. And uh, while slowly but surely his staff and other members of the Congress uh, sort of 
agreed to concessions in that uh, uh, when we finally got the package done, it, it was uh, somewhat too late. Poor modeling by the great scorer was an uh, important contribution. And then a reluctance at the end of the day to, uh, uh, to, take, to roll the dice in court and to exert regulatory authority to fix the problem. And so what we have is about two weeks ago, uh, the Obama administration put uh, the Class Act on indefinite hold. And we're left with this uh, demographic tsunami on its way, unaddressed by U.S. health reform. So that is the end of a uh, slightly troubling, but I think uh, um, instructive tale. Thank you. Thank you.